This is Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. Our guest today will be Molly Keene of Cojourn. Usually at this top of the hour, I do a book review. And the books generally kind of go around humane leadership because that's a lot of the foundation behind this show is about how to manage others and yourself in a kind way that fosters growth. Today I'm going to take a little bit of a deviation from that because I want to talk about a guy called Tim Urban. I've mentioned Tim Urban before. He has a blog. He's had a blog for many, many years He's occasionally had viral status on that blog. And for some reason, I've referenced him, but I've never really considered him an author. And I realized this week that just because he hasn't put his stuff together as if it's in a book, that doesn't delegitimize what is real value in the work that he does. And I'm going to talk about a couple of his posts. I hope I can encourage you to go and check him out and subscribe I'm definitely going to rave about several of them, but I also included one that I disagree with just so that I'm not completely on board with everything he says. I think since he doesn't even pretend to have all the answers, I think it's clear sometimes he doesn't quite, or or maybe the, maybe the better way to say it is that sometimes he fe- it feels like he's a little bit in a mood, <laughs> writes these things, and maybe doesn't go back and say, wow, that's not like I usually am. So the one that I, first of all, always recommend to people is his work on procrastination. That is where he's gone very successfully viral in the past. He did a whole series on understanding procrastination and then what to do about it. One of the things I love about Tim Urban, besides the kind of informal way that he writes and And I do really appreciate the way that he's able to talk about his thought process. But one of the most hilariously likable parts of it is that he's a terrible drawer. And by terrible, I mean he does not have the skills to make representational art. He's not a cartoonist in terms of like a good cartoonist that you might go buy the books of. He is in the sense of it doesn't stop him. And I find that very admirable. He draws stick figures. He uses some clip art. He does not seem to let that lack of perfection stop him. He does a non-procrastinator's brain being in control. The rational decision maker does things. And that the procrastinator's brain has an instant gratification monkey. I do have a little bit of a quibble with this. The concept of monkey brain, or uh, sometimes they say it's like a the older section of the brain or lizard brain, none of that is current science. All of that has been discounted and marked by actual brain scientists as not just irrelevant, but kind of a dangerous way to think about the brain. Even though it's a very cute little monkey, and even though I've benefited personally out of that visualization of it as a little monkey. It does kind of bring you close to that concept of monkey brain. So bear in mind, it's not a monkey brain. The other thing that's interesting is I discovered this, and this really spoke to me long before I had an actual diagnosis of ADHD. I don't really understand or know 
whether procrastination is that much of a problem if you don't have ADHD or neurodivergence. I'm sure people do procrastinate, but there's this, hmm, I want to say there's like this other order of procrastination and self-loathing and perfectionism. And there's a lot of things that go hand in hand with trauma and with neurodivergence and procrastination takes on, procrastination takes on an importance in those kinds of brains as if it were, say, maybe joint swelling in another kind of diagnosis. Like a, like a lot of times it really is an indicator that there is some kind of neurodivergence going on that needs attention. So it's interesting to me that this really spoke to me long before. And he just has a description about what it's like to lose control of that rational mind and then end up in the dark playground where you just feel terrible about yourself and require a panic monster in order to slap your true self and your distraction monkey into submission so that you can get started and, and finished on the thing that you needed to finish. And it's unpleasant and you're sold short and you may not be able to sustain this for long. Kudos to Urban because he also does a second part of how to beat procrastination and, 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 and again, I found enormous value in this and was able to do some of these things long before, many years before finding out I did have ADHD. Even though these things all helped me, I would cycle in and cycle out of actually being able to take advantage of them. So be again aware that some of these things might actually be flagging a deeper issue. Planning is one of the things people assume they need to do in light of procrastination, but effective planning takes the big list and selects a winner. Effective planning takes an icky item and makes it unicky. Reading, researching, talking out to others, breaking it down, maybe putting into little tasks, maybe even doing, I always laugh when I see a four quadrant grid because that's like the Harvard Business School's favorite, favorite shape. But in this, he made like step one, step two, step three, step four, and then making them into manageable little tasks. You could also do that the step before about whether you even do want to pursue this item on the list. And then the last is doing and how to get into flow. Again, though, if you're going into real flow and if you struggle with all this, there's a good chance you might do well with some help around neurodivergence. And then proving to yourself that you can do it. Aim for slow, steady progress. I'll tell you what this really did for me. Once I had some of these concepts that he was talking about, including, I might add, maybe even starring that little monkey, what I would do sometimes is when I felt like I was being pulled in a bunch of different directions, distracted all over the place. I knew I had to buckle down, but suddenly it was incredibly important to me that I vacuumed the rug or something like that. The idea of the monkey for me allowed me to take a second and breathe 
And I would sometimes actually just mime this out, holding my hand out and down below my waist as if I was going to take the hand of a child and feeling the hand of a monkey. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to do that, feel the hand of a monkey or a gorilla. If you're good at imagining, you can probably imagine what it's like. A little bit of a different size, the different shape than a human hand, but fundamentally like a human hand. And then kind of the feeling more of a foot than a hand. And that was very comforting to me, a little bit warm. I would take it in hand and the monkey would feel comforted and I would be able to get back on task. In any case, if you struggle with procrastination, go look up Wait But Why and see if any of that stuff is going to help you. If for no other reason than it's very kind. Another one that has been incredibly helpful is how to pick a career that actually fits you. It's another multi-parter in which he has these steps. Well, first of all, it's a description where you are so far, breaking down what your life will look like, your career map. How do you decide what to do next? I did this and I sat with a notebook and I filled in 17 pages and I would like to do it again and see where I am about what you want, what you yearn for. What about your potential? What about social, lifestyle, moral, practical, passion, all these things that kind of ikigai, like what you can do for money, what you can do for others, all those kinds of pursuits that you might do filling in the arms of the imaginary octopus. And I've seen things that are not too dissimilar to this before, right? A list of things, a sort of process to go through of how to figure out what you want to do. That's not, that's not so unique that it's mind-blowing. What's super helpful about Tim Urban's work is the way that he does take the time to go and find some of the things that are getting in your way. The first is imposters. The things you think you should want, but you don't want. And of course, the classic imposter is your parents telling you what they want for you that you took in. I mean, even if it's as simple as Uh, a child stating at some point that they want to be a doctor and the parents hooking on to that and running with it forever, that you're going to be a doctor, that you said you wanted to be, you know, as if a seven-year-old should be making decisions for a 27-year-old or a 17-year-old. One of the problems that we often don't really truly recognize about becoming adults is these Voices that are so deep, so constant, and have been with us for so long and so early that we do not realize that they are not ours. I certainly never realized that voices that seemed like they were just about caution were really about fear. I didn't realize that a lot of the stuff that I thought I wanted in life weren't mine at all. Because I had never, not only had I hadn't, hadn't been taught to listen to what I wanted, I had been taught very firmly by everyone around me that, that I had no worthy opinion at all, that I wasn't worth listening to. So it's very important to listen to everybody else and do what they said in order to have a good life. So this is a lovely and hilarious stick figure walking through this. 
not being able to figure out the difference between yearning and your authentic self. One of the things about this, and he really does coach you through it, it's very sad down there. It can be very foggy down there in denial. But if you are patient and you work through the steps, and this is why I sat there with 18 pages of notes, things may begin, things will, he says may, things will begin to emerge. Things that are truly reflective of you. I mean, this is one of the things that's so funny about this. When when you do anything like any kind of coaching, any kind of talking about deep subjects like this, the world really wants you to find a funny framework, the success diamond, the dodecahedron of leadership, and then stick with it and niche it and sell it. And you see them everywhere. It's one of the reasons they are inauthentic. It's one of the reasons you can only pick and choose bits of it. Growth can't necessarily be thrown into one single thing. And I think one of the things I appreciated about this, he starts with an octopus, he ends up in a jail, then he and then he goes on to a bookshelf. Top top shelf is the non-negotiable bowl. Must achieve at all cost, non-negotiable. Top shelf of the bookcase, below that is top priority, going to go hard for it. Middle shelf, it's important to avoid completely failing at it. Bottom shelf, if possible, it would be nice to have, but not at the expense of everything else. And trash can to throw things away, and it is important to resist it if you like some of the things in the trash can, which is a kind of version of in writing. If you have to get rid of stuff you really liked and really wanted to keep, it's called Kill Your Darlings. So suddenly we've gone from an octopus to a bookcase, and it doesn't matter. These are all useful. They're very funny, and they are useful. Although while I'm on, just a little digression from Kill Your Darlings. I know I talked with Elliot Winters about that for a little bit. I just saw a tweet that said, when you do that process of killing your darlings, you really aren't killing your darlings. You are preserving the bigger work, the actual relationship. You're walking away from relationships that aren't meeting your needs into the bigger, more satisfying relationship of the actual authentic work at its best, like the best possible work. And that kind of stopped me dead in my tracks, especially that language about leaving a relationship that doesn't suit your needs. I didn't learn that till very late in life, that it you don't have to be miserable every single day to stop being in a given relationship. And the idea of that actually being applied to my writing work and creative work, I it, it stopped me dead, and I see the truth of it. There is a trash can, throw the stuff in it, you're going to end up ultimately being happier. Talks about various resources and other blogs, which I actually follow as well because they're super helpful. What I found about this is it allowed, it gave me the space to answer my own questions because one of the problems with a lot of this kind of stuff is that, and particularly if you are either raised by educators or very steeped in an academic world, is that you ask your advisors and they often don't have the deep humility to let you go through this process yourself. They often just tell you their advice. And it's, you may even pursue it. But the reason you're still dissatisfied is because it was just that. It was their advice. It wasn't 
your advice. You'll listen to your own advice way more effectively than you will to other people's, but only if you are given a chance to have the space to hear it. Another one that I truly admire of Tim Urban's is how to pick a life partner. And it's all very good, but I think the part that really sold me on it, and I still think of this all the time, if you are interested in a phenomenal, I think I've talked about it before, in fact, I know I have, sweary and phenomenal take on relationships, I can recommend Daniel Sloss's Jigsaw Netflix special. It reminded me a little of this piece by Tim Urban, where his illustration is a staircase and a little tiny sad stick figure is on the bottom stair, me, and at the top stair is a little couple with a heart and they've got it all figured out and that's the staircase. And the realization that he had that he is not at the bottom of the staircase. He's in the middle of a staircase and I love this quote. Dissatisfied single people should actually consider themselves in a neutral, fairly hopeful position compared to what their situation otherwise could be. A single person who would like to find a great relationship is one step away from it. Because below them on the figured it out staircase is a miserable couple who's stuck, whose expectations are just getting shredded and who have picked the wrong partner. Better to not have a partner than be with the wrong partner. Life is long. We can expect to live into our 80s or 90s. People do get divorced. Nobody thinks they will, but they do. It is expensive. Mostly, it's funny. You can do mediation. I did mediation. The expense existed, but it was not huge or a nightmare. The hardest thing for me to mourn, to grieve over in my own divorce was the sense of wasted time and wasted potential because that was priceless. I can't get that back at all. No one can. That is a huge deal. And that perspective that it is better to be alone and working on yourself than partnered wrong incredibly profound. And that is in the first half minute of reading of this. Lastly, so that I'm not just uh, talking about how great he is, although he's also got some just hilarious ones of like, can you fit the entire population of the world into the geographic space of New York City and hilarious little brain things like that. But I did kind of go through and I found this one, which was why Generation Y yuppies are unhappy. It's 2013, so that is worth keeping in mind. This person who had a very blessed life is unhappy. I think a lot about the Lena Durham series Girls. It's a lot like that, that kind of character. Somebody who seems to have been given so much and yet is very dissatisfied because they expected more. One major piece missing from this is that of race. So he doesn't mention it at all. It just, it's the default. So it's white. And I don't think that people of color have any of the same challenges, which isn't to say that this character Lucy doesn't have challenges. Clearly she does. But I definitely felt like that's not that 
like Lucy's unhappy. Other people her age are unhappy. They There's a good chance they're unhappy for very different reasons if they have those different backgrounds. Lucy is the grandchild of the World War II generation, you know, the vets and the boomers. You know, her parents are boomers. So that kind of cultural legacy is what is actually kind of messing Lucy up. And he says... Happiness equals reality minus expectations. He says it's pretty straightforward, and I think it's oversimplified. Because reality, part of the thing about reality is the fact that it is very loose. It's it's wobbly. Reality isn't always... <clears throat> reality seems like a concrete thing. It is not concrete as evidenced by the fact that separate people can go through the same reality and have absolutely, utterly different experiences. How you perceive that reality, what you do with that reality, is far more important. And and then you get into the idea of expectations. I do think the disconnect is real. I think the disconnect is painful. But I also think that expectations is also pretty loaded. You don't tend to generate expectations magically on your own. You are given them and you're given them very, 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 very early. So that is a colossal blind spot for people. I think he is on the right track when he suggests that people in the World War generation got out of that war, by the way, excessively traumatized, and we don't talk enough at all about generational trauma, but the reality turned out to be better for them than they had thought it would be. They were a pretty nihilistic bunch, particularly in the early 50s and late 40s, and as time went on, things seemed to get sunnier and better for them. There were lots of political At least in the U.S., there was a fair amount of political action to make that the case, again, for white middle-class people, often leaving out deliberately everybody else. But that experience definitely raised expectations that were not going to be borne out. You know, he says at some point that this group of people are taunted, that social media ends up giving them a funhouse mirror, a terrible distorting mirror to look at themselves. I don't think that's where they're taunted. I think they're taunted by traditional media. I think they're taunted by their their parents. The number of people and pearl clutching about kids these days is one of the most infuriating pieces of gaslighting that I've ever heard. Children didn't demand participation trophies. Parents demanded them to feel better, to quote-unquote make their kids feel better. Rather than teaching their kids how to self-regulate around disappointment, they insisted on special treatment for their kids and then turned around and taunted them for having expectations that things would fall in line for them. An appalling setup, if I've ever heard one. So I just think there's a lot of things here. I guess what I'd like to do with him, I'd like to sit down with him over some of these, particularly this one, and say, 
What about these other pieces? And I guess that's really the thing about the difference between blogs and, you know, my usual fodder of books is that unless they've been truly self-published and then that that can be, you know, hit or miss. But a book tends to have an editor and an editor may be able to challenge you and say, if you're going to make these sweeping generalizations about this kind of person that is unhappy because things didn't pan out for them, you're going to have to specify race and class because the way that you're doing it now sort of is like everybody that's like this is like that. No, Lucy and her disappointments are going to be radically different than the person of color next to her and their disappointments. And I really think that needs to be explicit. He does have a couple of good tips that I love at the end that frankly are universal. Stay wildly ambitious. The world needs you. Stop thinking you're special. Ah, yeah. And he goes on to say if you're another completely inexperienced young person who doesn't have all that much to offer yet. I don't think it's stop feeling like you're special as that is irrelevant. Your specialness is irrelevant. It will come into play later as you develop other gifts and begin to work in service. But right now it's just irrelevant. And then ignore everyone else. And this is a piece that I am, I really do value. It's a piece I am constantly thinking about because I have to overcome so much of my own training about it. And that is other people's greener grass, other people's successes, other people's reaching some kind of nirvana that you don't. We are compared to each other from our first day of school and possibly in our families of origin as well, as if it matters, and it doesn't. So if nothing else, that is good advice. You're listening to 9 to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. Next up, the first half of our conversation with guest Molly Keene on sharing gentle accountability, making deep connections, and learning from others. With me today is Molly Keene, co-founder of Cojourn, an accountability framework for goal setting and peer support, author of a book by the same name, and lecturer at Mount Holyoke College. Thanks for being with me today, Molly. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Me too. Can you tell me just a little bit about Cojourn and what it is and how it works? Absolutely, yes. So Cojourn is a program basically for personal growth or goal achievement where you partner with somebody, traditionally somebody in your life, and you have an accountability partnership, but you apply our framework, which has research-backed strategies that help make accountability partnerships work. And you choose a set set period of time that you want to do it together. We recommend you know, 12 weeks up to a year and an overall guiding theme that you want to work toward. And then you and your partner support each other using our framework to uh, make goals and intentions related to your guiding theme. Okay. So when you say research backed, have you done that research or is it a sort of a synthesis of what's out there? That is a beautiful question. Some of it was based in research I came across when I was doing my doctorate in social justice education Mm. about the impact of human connection on our well-being, on learning, on the brain. And so when we created Cojourn, and I can share more about that later, but 
we created it, my, my co-founder Carl and I, as a way to help ourselves through a time of struggle as one of those fun creative experiments. And we based it in some of the research that I was working with mm. at the time. And we have since done maybe you know, at least in the book, at least 50 interviews, but we've done more, you know, around some of the different components. And some of them are things based out of positive psychology and other, other things. And then some of them are just sort of common sense. I'm just going to ask you to explain positive psychology as opposed to negative. Yes. Yes. Well, some some of the pieces, one of the, so Cochran has eight core components that are what we argue make it work or different from an accountability partnership that might fizzle out or have tangles in it or different things. And one of them, for example, is to have a spirit of celebration and really focus each week on what you did accomplish rather than like beating yourself up about what you did not accomplish. Ah. And some of the brain, you know, that, you know, we spend it takes two seconds for a negative experience to go into our long-term memory, but 12 to 20 for positive things too. For That's an example, you know, and looking at some of the neuroscience around the power of sharing with someone else and celebrating like your small wins or the things that you do for more motivation to keep doing that. That is really interesting. I did not know about the seconds. I knew that we are attracted and that negative like stories narratives thoughts are more sticky but i didn't know that it was like but two for negative and 12 to 20 for positive that is huge yes i i had heard about it also about the negativity bias and we pay five times more attention to the negative but the that actual seconds was new for me as well in a recent workshop i attended and she got out a timer and it was shocking oh to my see God. the difference between that two seconds and the the longer so that is really interesting because it actually brings up like I mean not only sharing small wins and celebrations but actually taking at least 20 seconds to do it (laughs) how many times have I been like oh yeah oh yeah it's really important to like you know celebrate small wins yay I did it okay moving on instead Mm -hmm. of like I don't know it just sort of feels like now I feel like I should take a timer or celebrate for as long as it takes to sing happy birthday or something yeah yeah (laughs) oh that's very cool all right and so so okay so this is a framework and so what happens is people have a goal that they've had a hard time or or whatever meeting and they find someone in their immediate life who has the same something they need to do and they join up to do this they essentially make themselves a team exactly yep And I think it's helpful to explain how it works. So Carl and I created it back in 2013, which is hard to believe is a long time ago. And I was sort of five and a half years into a graduate program, decided I did not want to be a traditional academic and was sort of like, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? Feeling overwhelmed and lost and having just a lot of anxiety. Mm. And he and I actually played in a band together. So I was the accordion player and lead singer and he lived out in Boston and we had similarly gotten really interested in mindfulness and we're attending a meditation retreat with Pema Chodron who um, is a Buddhist teacher and Mm -hmm. and we made goals together around meditating so I had told Carl I'm going to meditate 10 minutes every morning this week and let's check in next Wednesday and because I had told him 
that I was going to do it. I mean, it's so simple, but it's the magic of accountability. Like the next Wednesday we called each other and I was like, I did it. I actually did it. I've been trying for years because I knew it would support my anxiety. And so it was sort of from out of that very simple. And since then, if I can add in a quick accountability hack that I learned, this is a research study that said that found that if you tell someone you're going to do something, write it down and follow up with them afterward, you're 76% likely to actually do the thing. And as opposed to 35% likely to do it if you don't set up that accountability. Oh, wow. And so there's, it's just this tiny little simple human thing, right? And I use that all the time where if I have to clean my room or something, I'll tell my mother, I'm going to call you tomorrow. I promise you I'll clean my room tonight. <laughs> you know, And then I actually do it. And so Cochran is based in sort of the, the value of human connection where we, we made it so you actually talk to your partner every week for about, you know, recommended 30 minute check-in and to sort of really get that reciprocal vulnerability, the power of having someone to talk to who knows what's happening with you and the accountability, you know, so someone who knows what you're going to do and, and it automatically increases your likelihood. So Carl and I created it. It was, and, and, and then later we decided, huh, what if we met every week? And what if we came up with a overall goal that we wanted to work on? It was right around new year's. Hmm. And I had like 10 New Year's resolutions. And he was like, Molly, let's be real. Like, you're not going to do any of those. So we're like, what if we just choose one area? You know, and that later became a core component of Cochran is that it's a singular focus on one broad area of change that you go after. Um, But mine was quieting myself that first year, really to get a hold on my anxiety. I had decided I did want to try to finish graduate school and I needed to get myself well enough to be able to do that. And so my goals were things like meditate, you know, every morning and take one day a week off from writing, which was always difficult for me. And I overextend myself socially, you know, back then I was out and about a lot. So I like made goals around staying in at least two nights during the week, you know, and, and, and it really helped get my mental health more in check to be able to finish the big project to finish graduate school. Oh, that is very cool. And so do you and the person you're partnering with have to have sort of similar projects to be working on or does it matter? No. In fact, I think there can be a lot of value and be, I mean, sometimes people are working on a similar thing and you can share ideas, but there's also such value in backing someone else and something that's totally different. And so the, the first year with Carl, he worked on connection. And I'll say this, this whole story is written in the book and I have Carl's permission to talk about it, but <laughs> usually Codron is also confidential and that's one of the eight core components that, you know, what you share in the context of the check-ins stays there. But Carl at the time had just relocated. He had been a full-time professional musician and was struggling with chronic arm pain Ooh. and subsequent depression from that. It had just left a long-term relationship. And so he was really struggling and made his, his guiding theme around connection, both connecting, reconnecting with himself and what he wanted and what he was going to do career-wise, but also connecting with people in his life because he had relocated back to Massachusetts. Mm. And so, and I... Connection is not an area where I've struggled in the same way. And I also think my socialization by my family and being a woman, like I, I, I've been able, better able to have a particular kind of connection, which he would talk about 
you know, as a guy, some of his socialization, and I know I'm speaking in generalizations, but this was his experience. It was really about talking about more surface level things or sports or joking and not that real deep heart to heart. And so his goals were like, I'm going to take my mom to lunch and ask her questions about her life. Mm, those are like intimacy, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not and like, romantic intimacy, my, but. Right. And, or his goal was to hang out with his brothers and try to take it at a level deeper than usual. And so I got to back and support him in those while he was supporting me with quieting myself. And after a year, it was like, wow, that really made a difference in my life. Let's try it with a new partner. And see if it works again, because the first year was just, we had no idea we would ever write a book about it or start a program or it was really just to support ourselves, like one of those fun year long experiments. Right. right. Actually, right. Isn't that you do it for a year and then you write a book. (laughs) (laughs) The book book we did the thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of neat to turn it into an actual like practice after that versus like I don't know year of living biblically or I can't even say it year of living biblically or year of eating nothing but hamburgers or (laughs) yeah it's neat it's neat to kind of codify it into a list of what works and what doesn't work so you mentioned fizzling out what are the big challenges to sustaining something like this for long enough to get everything done Mm -hmm. I, I you know I think I think a big way that Cojourn helps with accountability partnerships is that one of the core components is that it's peer support rather than peer coaching. Ah. And you're really instructed to hold space for your partner and they develop, let's say there are three mini goals for the week that are going to move them toward this broader intention. And you record them them for them. You engage in active listening and you're supportive, but you don't give them advice about what to do unless they ask you know, you, you can ask for someone's thinking, but you never lead with it and you're cautious. And I really think that a lot of the value is that we often, you know, we know really deep down probably what we want to do around some of these areas. And it's just having some time and someone's loving attention on us to help us access our own wisdom and knowing, Mm. and then bring that into fruition every week. And I think sometimes with Other partnerships when, you know, unless it's like a trained coach or a therapist, if someone's like, oh yeah, all you have to do, like, you know, I struggle with like cleanliness in my house. I live alone and it's like the first thing to go. Right. And so I'm often making coaching goals around like, I have to get my, you know, you know, or make goals around beauty and order, let's say in my home. (laughs) And if I had a partner who's like, well, all you have to do is this, right. There's an element of almost feeling judged or. Yeah, unsolicited advice can can be tricky. But sometimes I'll say, I feel really lost. Do you have any ideas for me? And that's a very different, it's consensual. It's asked for. And over time, sometimes a partner might notice patterns, right? And so they might say, hey, I have an idea. Do you want to hear it? But it really is always about checking in. So that's one piece. And then the only other thing is to have the set time every week. Like my co-journal partner and I currently meet every Monday morning at 7am and it's just a half hour, you know, and we report on our goals from the last week and we create our new ones using this framework. And to know that I have that to show up for, to kind of check the compass and see if I'm going in the direction I set for myself Mm -hmm. and help her to do the same is really helpful to have that clear structure in place. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. There's a book called A Time to Think. Are you familiar with it? 
I'm not. No, but I'm running that down. Yeah, I can always send you the link for it. But the whole deal about creating space so that someone can come up with their own solutions to it. Mm. She's done a ton of research and training on that for, I want to say, 30 years or so about oh. a f sort of structure for letting that happen. And I've practiced it a couple times. And boy, does it take practice because she's like, you know, she, she has the steps and she's like, some time has passed silently. You are about to talk. Don't open your mouth. <laughs> I was like, oh, she got me. I, I, and it's so hard. And then she's like a minute later, she's like, don't open your mouth now either. <laughs> but I have the answer. But of course, I don't have the answer. Like, I don't. It, and if I did, it's not a good answer. Because when you come up with your own answer, you're way more likely to actually do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> also, a lot of times stuff gets resolved just by being heard. Yes. <laughs> so absolutely, and and there's something in the reciprocity. Like I, you know, I've definitely seen therapists over the years, and there's such value in that. Mm. And there's been something lovely about hearing where someone else struggles, right? Because we don't always show that to each other. Right. And to be like, I'm not the only one, right? Right. <laughs> with all these things. And then to get a chance to like support someone else. Yeah. And there, you know, and, and learn from their journey. And sometimes like that first year, Carl would do something really courageous. Mm. And I would hear about it. And it would make me feel, you know, that positive peer pressure of doing something courageous myself, you know, the next week in my life, even if it was different, yeah. um, but sort yeah. of uh, feeding off that from each other. And then just the inherent wisdom that everyone has. I've done it with a different partner every year. So I have seven different people. I've spent a year in this, you know, intimate weekly engagement with, and it, it really does grow and build relationships and my own learning about how different people think about things. Mm, that's really neat. I was just going to say that for those of us who have an identity that's as a problem solver or a fixer, so mm -hmm. often it's that we're not fixing or problem solving our own list. We're doing it for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> and making ourselves feel like we're getting stuff done. So seven different people. How did you, how do you find people that you're going to be a simpatico with, that you're going to be aligned right. with? Usually for, for me personally, I think of someone who, you know, we always say that the most important is that you trust them somewhat and that they're willing to do it. Mm -hmm. I had, uh, you know, I had asked, um, actually my father years ago and he said, no, <laughs> we laughed about it. but it was great because it was clear. Right. And so if I were to try to convince them, then it doesn't really work. But, um, I've, yeah, really kind of held on to that and really tried to, I think because we were creating the program, you know, I've done it with, you know, men, women, I did it, I've done it with a few different folks of color, I identify as white, a couple of queer folks, I identify as straight, somebody who's 25 years older than me. I haven't done it with someone much younger, but I did it with some, you know, a guy who was about seven years younger than me, but there's been such value in doing it within and across identities in different ways. And, or I think about people who I really like, but I want to build a deeper relationship with. And then I, right now I'm doing it with my very best friend from college. And it's been very easeful because we already had that relationship, but I do think it's taken our friendship to a deeper level. 
Have you ever found in all this time that you had to sever one and how to do it gracefully? I have not personally, but people definitely have. And we've sort of supported people through that. So now we offer some co-joined cohorts where we'll have a group of people go through for a 12-week program. And we offer partner matching, which is huge because mm-hmm. so many people don't necessarily have somebody in their life who might want to do this. I or about have, that. Yeah. Yeah. And we um, have been working with a lot of different organizations. So UMass launched 160 faculty and staff in the fall to do cojourn and they offered partner matching and that was huge for folks so they'd be you know paired in different ways and there have been partnerships that didn't work out either one person decided it wasn't for them you know over time or there was one time when someone was working on something that was hard or painful for the other person ah Typically, we encourage people to check in at the beginning to say, I'm going to work in this broad area of my life. Is this something that you feel, you know, even though you're not giving advice, that had to do with, you know, a person with a history of an eating disorder and the other person working on body stuff and weight loss, which can be tricky, right? And there's other areas where you want to check in. I can think of so many. I mean, if someone was sort of working through infertility and the other one's working on parenting issues, I mean, there's just a lot that could be. Yeah, that's another good example. Yep. Interesting. And there are sort of built, are there ways that have been, you guys have sort of had ways to sort of gracefully end some of these relationships or do they just kind of go on a case by case basis? Yeah, it's different if people are within the program with us or Mm -hmm. if they just buy the book and they do it on their own. And one, we talked them through and helped support the conversation around Mm -hmm. it. We actually have a whole chapter in the book called okay. what to do when there's trouble in paradise and sort of have you know tips and tricks about how to navigate it. a lot of it is about you know communication around needs and wants with your partner and part of the program we also have like a weekly email if it's a 12 week or a monthly email for the year that folks get when they sign up and that reminds you of aspects of the program and we encourage like for example at the 12 week at the halfway point we have people do a process check-in mm. and we have some questions to, for them to talk through how is this feeling you know does is the timing working is there anything you need from your partner that you're not getting how do you feel like you're doing with the 12 core components oh neat we start off with appreciations for your partner. Yeah. And so help people have that designated time to need to talk through yeah. how the relationship's going can help prevent some of the tricky dynamic. I mean, that's good team health keeping anyway, just if you just go back to the idea of teams. Exactly. So what are the biggest challenges of for that people find doing this? Number one is finding a partner or having a partner to do it with. And then the second biggest challenge I would say is, you know, we get consistent feedback that when people do it, they have a phenomenal experience, right? And it's, it's almost hard to articulate the impact, but of, of that, going back to that basic human connection and the value of that, particularly as we're becoming more and more isolated in different ways. Right. And so, you know, often people will be in tears at the closing or when I interview folks just about like, wow, I had no idea I could develop that kind of relationship with my mother or that this helped me through this time when I didn't even know I was going to need support. But then Mm. I had the person I was already meeting with or Mm. the hardest thing is to get people in the door to start it. Ah, interesting. I, I think, you know, to sign up, it's 
it's a half hour a week of talking to somebody, right? And yeah. so sometimes there's a lot of accountability apps or things out there that maybe don't feel quite so, I guess, time consuming or you're, you know, you're putting yourself out there by sharing with someone and having them share with you back. Right. And then, and so we're finding a lot of success where organizations pay mm. for coacher and for the well-being of their employees. And then we come in and we do a launch to train everyone how to do it. And we have a companion guidebook that they get and sort of then they're in our system to get the weekly emails. But so they do it themselves, but there's someone else holding it and paying for it. And then the the rates of people signing up to do it is much, much higher. Oh, I was going to ask about that because a lot of times I've heard, as with everything, right? You go out and you, you check to see what normally happens. And 50% of people say this does and 50% say that does. But for coaching, a lot of times I've heard if a company pays for it, people don't really avail themselves of it. <laughs> and it sounds like for this, the company pays for it and people are like nailing it. Well, that, I mean, it's not, yes, so far that, that has been the case. But I also think that that started during the pandemic mm. when I think people have been more hungry for a deeper connection. That's you know? very interesting. Yeah. We've also worked some with college students. We had a class at Eisenberg at UMass Amherst. The whole class did Cojourn as part of the course. Oh, neat. And data from that. And the students really liked it. You know, my, my master's is in college student development and counseling, and then my doctorate's in social justice education. And so I've always worked with college population, higher ed. And so mm -hmm. I think I have this dream of really bringing it to college students because research is showing they're right now the most isolated and lonely yeah. cohort. And they haven't come to it as quickly or easily as, say, graduate students and, 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 and I'm thinking of traditional age college students and up, you mm -hmm. know, have really migrated to Kojur more easily. And it's been harder for to get students involved and into it. So it was really exciting to have it be a built in part of a course. Yeah, that's very cool. And then it allowed you guys to do data collection. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So is Carl your partner in this in the business, too? He's, oh, he's only my partner in the business. Yeah. Oh, you okay. mean like he's but, not a romantic partner? No, 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 so I, I didn't but, mean that. But like he was your first uh, person to sort of develop this idea with, and then now is your business partner. Yes. Oh, cool. So we we did it for a year, and we told some friends and family, and then we had like ten pairs do it that second year, mm. and then the third year, you know, it started to spread, and we kind of wrote it up. But we would do these phone launches for people, and it was always free, and it was for anyone who wanted to do it, and so then it started to. <laughs> build from there and now I think we're at 48 countries and over oh, 48 wow. we have people using Cojourn around the world which has been just really amazing to connect with somebody you know so far away who's using this simple program that we created oh that's very cool so when they're doing it from how do you find out about this do they just contact your business or they read the book and then contact you or Yes, before the book existed, it was just completely word of mouth and it was on our website. And, you know, at the time there was no cost to try it, which I think made it very accessible for folks. That was always one of our goals was to keep it accessible. Hmm. And then since the book was published, you know, that's the best way to learn how to do the program. So right. we do have video series around how to do it and we're working on a more online kind of course, short-term course kind of thing. But 
Yeah, that's how that's how people learn before that. And then we all sometimes offer cojourn launches where people can come, you know, virtually and learn from us how to do it. Mm. And Carl and I together created co-wrote the book um, oh, that, nice. you know, right before the pandemic started. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so what have you learned from making this into an actual business? Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about how this podcast talks about community, creativity, and work. Mm. And what's been interesting is that Cojourn was always our creative side project, Mm. right? It wasn't the topic of my doctoral research or even exactly what I got my degree in, right? And I teach (laughs) at Mount Holyoke. I do work around race and racism and intergroup dialogues on race and racism and then how to train people how to facilitate dialogues on race and racism. Mm. And I love that work also. And there's a lot of overlap in terms of the magic that can happen when you have a container and opportunity for reciprocal vulnerability. Mm. And that's, and the power of human connection, right? And bringing people together in different ways. And so there's definitely a tie between my t- multiple areas of work. But Cojourn has started shifting from a creative side project to having it or the longing for it to be our work, work, or at least more of a higher percentage. And so it's been, it's been a journey and I've learned a lot about how to think about that and still have it feel like magic, which it always did before, you know, when I got a chance to work on Cojourn or, and setting up my life so that I can make it work out that way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When you, uh, when you mentioned the, sort of inflection point between this and your lecturing topics is there a thought or is there a way or really I'm just I'm just wishing a way to sort of match up really disparate people like when we talked about sort of people that are aligned with you so that you can partner with them be on a team get to a goal I mean I'm wondering if there would be real deep community value in being partnered with someone who's really different from you <laughs> so mm-hmm. so that you can spend you know 12 weeks to a year supporting somebody whose background is radically different from yours right yeah i think there could be there could be power in that we have not yet fully gone the route of thinking about partner matching yeah but as we have especially but i do think there could be a lot of possibility because there's there's so much that we can learn about and from each other. I can say we, after this is sort of our community offering, but last June after George Floyd's murder, we created a Cojourn for Racial Justice model. Ah. And that was so exciting because it was the combo of both areas of my expertise in one. And we had a team of, I think it was 10 of us, mix of white folks and folks of color who've all done Cojourn and who also do social justice education come together and help co-design this program that was free. And we had a close to 150 people sign up Mm. and we offered partner matching and it was for people for 12 weeks to have an accountability partner to meet with, to work on their own work toward racial justice, whatever that looked like for them. And so, um, and we did do a lot of thinking about partner matching, you know, for that. And we did, in that example, we offered 
people could say, but we, we offered for folks of color to choose whether or not they wanted to be with a white person because we didn't want it to be extra labor, right? especially because the topic was around racial justice. Right. So it was, it was a, and we are, we're launching that program with a number of organizations now. So we have a whole, you know, 80 staff in elementary school, all doing co-journal for racial justice. Mm. And we've paired, you know, teachers up with each other and did a similar version of partner matching there where there was choice. And to your idea, I think there could be so much power in having people willingly choose, you know, yeah. to be prepared, even across political ideals. I was thinking so, about that, too. I was thinking yeah. about that, too, although um, my perception is that people who politically live different don't necessarily have structural differences. And I was just thinking how neat it would be to have 12 weeks with someone who's like experience and background in the world through you were saying before you've had uh partners of different ethnicities and races partners of different sexual preferences be really neat to sort of purposefully choose something like that for some i mean forgive the word mundane set of goals right you know (laughs) you want to learn how to cook better i want to finish editing my book but you know but but you are from nigeria and your whatever like your background is going to be so different than mine (laughs) (laughs) I'm from New England. You know, it would just be kind of, it would be, I don't know, it it would be really neat. And the stakes are super low. Like that's the only thing about racial justice is the stakes are super high and the the tensions and emotions and and just sort of the environment is super hot. Whereas just being like, yeah, you just want to learn about, you know, five new dishes by the end of the 12 weeks. Yeah, no, I, I, I really love that. It, even if, across age, if it was, you know, a 20 yeah. year old and an 80 year old and like the incredible connection that could be forged and yeah. that could be shared. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Yeah. I'd like to thank Molly Keene for talking with me today. Come back next week to hear the second half of our conversation. Links, social media, and more can be found at our website, working9to thrive.com, and that's with a nine. See you next week.